Hello, and welcome to the Free Speech and Medicine podcast. As you'll know, we're in the final throes of organizing for the 2023 Free Speech and Medicine Conference coming up soon in Bedeck, Nova Scotia, October 27th to 29th. All the details, the list of speakers, um, and other information is at freespeechandmedicine.com, and I hope you consider joining us. Tonight, I'm interviewing Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Many of you who've been paying attention to these matters over the last several years will already know Dr. Cariotti's name. Dr. Cariotti is a psychiatrist and a medical ethicist. He was a professor at UC Irvine in California until he dared speak out against vaccine mandates. He was quickly removed which I find ironic since what he was doing was actually adhering to medical ethics. Um, so he was essentially fired from his position as a medical ethicist for actually being medically ethical. In any case, Dr. Cariotti's life is very different now, although certainly not less busy. As you'll hear, he's a father of five boys. He is working for a think tank in Washington he is a fellow of the Brownstone Institute. He is still a practicing psychiatrist, and he's an author who's written the rise, uh, the new abnormal, the rise of the biomedical security state, a book which is a great primer and review of how the heck we got here and what are the things that we should be concerned about currently with the empowerment of public health and its new position as essentially an overlord to all of us. Dr. Cariotti had the honor of being invited to be part of Jordan Peterson's ARC initiative, which is going on shortly after our conference in Britain, and therefore couldn't come in person, but will be presenting by Zoom and answering questions. And as you'll hear, we really hope to twist his arm to come in person next year. He is a real hero of mine, so I was very honored that he agreed to be part of our conference and honored that he would spend some extra time with us to do this podcast. His ideas on how our current medical tyranny developed are very insightful and I believe very important, and I think you'll find this conversation as interesting as I did. Hello, Free Speech and Medicine podcast listeners. Tonight, I'm speaking with Dr. Aaron Cariotti all the way from uh, presumably sunnier than Nova Scotia, California. Um, Aaron, as you will hear, is a really important figure in this post-COVID world where we're trying to make sense of what the hell happened in the last few years. Um, I won't belabor a long introduction because I'm going to dub that in later, previous to this, but I'll just say uh, we're very, very uh, pleased that Aaron has agreed to speak. Um, Aaron was... Uh, unfortunately for us, unfortunately for him, was invited to Jordan Peterson's ARC initiative in um, Britain. So he couldn't come in person, but he'll be presenting by Zoom and answering questions by Zoom to uh, those of us at Free Speech and Medicine coming up in a few weeks. So Aaron, thanks very much for uh, agreeing to speak for us later in the month and for taking the time tonight, because I know you're a busy laddie. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you. And I'm really looking forward uh, to participating in free speech and medicine, even if it's going to be virtual uh, this time around. So thank right. you. Well, we hope to get you out here in person sometime. Um, so maybe you can start off by a, a lot of the people who follow 
paradox and free speech mess and we'll have already heard your name and know who you are but maybe uh for the benefit of those who haven't maybe go ahead and sort of run us through who who is aaron cariotti and what are you doing and what the heck happened to you the last couple of years sure so i'm a physician i specialize in psychiatry and for most of my career I was a professor in the School of Medicine at the University of California, Irvine, where I spent um, about half my time doing work in the Department of Psychiatry and Medical Education. And the other half of my time, I was the director of the medical ethics program for the hospital and for the university. And that lasted until the end of 2021. And it was at that point that I made the fateful decision to challenge the University of California's vaccine mandate in federal court. And as a consequence of taking legal action to try to get that mandate policy changed, I was fired by the university very swiftly. So now I have a small private practice in Southern California, and most of my time is spent doing work in medical ethics and public policy at a think tank called the Ethics and Public Policy Center, uh, which is based in Washington, D.C. I work remotely from California, but um, I get support from the EBBC to continue working on issues related to bioethics, public health, public policy. Um, I'm focused a lot right now on issues related to censorship. So I'm involved in a couple of free speech cases in the United States, one of which is going to prove to be, I think, very consequential for the issue of free speech and government censorship in the U.S. It's a case called Missouri v. Biden. So I'm still focused on all the issues that I cared about during the pandemic, issues like informed consent, the right of competent adults to make decisions about what medications or vaccines uh, they take and to make those decisions on behalf of their children who are too young to consent. So medical freedom is uh, central to the work that I do in bioethics. Uh, I'm also uh, still very focused on public health related issues. I wrote a book called The New Abnormal, which in some sense is about our pandemic response. And um, but even more so, I wrote the book not so much as a retrospective on the things that went wrong during COVID, but um, as an attempt to analyze where did those bad policies come from and what framework was introduced, what I call in the subtitle, the biomedical security state, this increasingly militarized public health apparatus combined with digital technologies of surveillance and control. You could think about vaccine passports as one example of how those technologies were used during COVID. And those things being backed up by the police powers of the state, you think of uh, in your home country in Canada, Justin Trudeau invoking the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history and not only forcibly removing the truckers from Ottawa using a militarized police force, but also freezing the bank accounts of participants in the Freedom Convoy and, and actually freezing the bank accounts of people who gave money to the truckers convoy. So what I describe in the book is of concern to me, not just because of what happened during those three years that we were dealing with COVID. But more importantly, how is that whole apparatus going to be deployed in the future for the next real or manufactured public health crisis? So, so that's, that's a very brief um, kind of 30,000 foot overview of my work and 
and you know what I do professionally. Right. So you're uh, you're working for this think tank in in uh, Washington. I know you're a fellow of the Brownstone Institute. You're that's correct. Yep. Forgot to mention Brownstone. Yeah. You're involved with the Missouri v. Biden case, which I think is personally, I think is the most consequential and important case in the last maybe 50 years that's probably working its way to the Supreme Court. You're uh, still a working psychiatrist and you're uh, a dad and a family man. I, as that's I right. I'm, yeah, most importantly, I'm, I'm married to my wife, Jennifer, who's just a tremendous, tremendous person. Uh, and we are the, I'm the father. She's the mother of five children. We have five boys, um, ranging from age 22 down to 11. So Wow. Um, yeah, so I've got a lot of plates in the air. You that, could say. That's awesome. I, I was I was one of five boys, so all I can say to you is Godspeed. You, were, <laughs> so you know what it's like. Yeah, you I, know. What I it's hope like. they were they are better behaved than we were. <laughs> it's great. It's great fun. But yeah, it, there certainly having five boys yeah. is has been a handful. It's been an an adventure. Yeah. Right. Um, so, kind of coming out of what you said. Um, I, I've certainly felt and many people felt that the response to COVID w- didn't come out of the blue. We didn't have this wonderful uh, right. medical system. We had complete autonomy. We had uh, respect of patients' rights and everything was going along swimmingly. And then suddenly COVID came and everything just turned 180 degrees. Many of us Correct. felt things, felt a stirring in the foundations of medicine coming on over a while uh, you you're you're nodding uh and so obviously you, you believe this too what can you describe that what what was happening what laid the groundwork so that we could have such a perverse response to covid yeah that's a really good question and a really good insight i agree with you completely chris that i think what we saw during covid was a series of 20 year trends, 20, 25 year trends that had been operating underneath the surface and had manifested in various ways, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, but that those underlying shifts and tendencies fully manifest during the pandemic in in living color and kind of um, what felt like going from zero to 60 was more like going from 15 or 20 to 60. Um, that this represented sort of the culmination of some nefarious trends in medicine, in organized medicine, in public health, and in the institutions of medicine. And the story of all that is rather complicated. I tell part of that story in my book, but just to give a few sort of hints at, at some of what was going on. Number one, there's been... Um, a centralization of power within medicine and medical institutions. So if you look 40 years ago, you know, a generation or two ago, most physicians, four out of five physicians uh, 40 years ago were in some sort of private practice or independent practice where they were, they had a lot of discretionary latitude. They were more or less running their practice the way they wanted to, obviously taking input from the outside. But physicians were able to exercise a lot of uh, freedom and autonomy to treat their patients according to their own best judgment. Um, 20% of physicians, you know, 40 years ago worked for some larger healthcare conglomerate, the VA hospital 
or um, you know the equivalent of what now would be an HMO or a large healthcare system. Well, today those numbers are reversed. So today we have four out of five physicians working for some typically very very large corporate entity um, or you know nonprofit entity at least as those are configured here in the United States but that basically operates like a large corporate entity or they're working for a government entity that's running hospitals i know the healthcare system in canada is very different but at least for healthcare in the united states this represents a very significant shift uh, to the point where many physicians, I think during COVID and in the years leading up to COVID, uh, in a sort of drip, drip, drip fashion, and then, you know, in a very severe fashion during the pandemic, have felt that they, they've had to sort of fall in line with whatever the corporate policy is, whatever the hospital policy is, whatever, whatever the chief medical officer or the directives from on high are indicating about how we're going to treat A, B, C, and D. Um, and that as a consequence of that, physicians are, I think, have been conditioned not to exercise independent clinical judgment in the ways that perhaps they did 40, 50 years ago. And in some cases, even when their intuition, their clinical judgment, their clinical reasoning would nudge them in another direction, they feel like well, if I don't fall in line here, if I don't maybe even compromise here a little bit or a lot, I'm going to lose my job. You know, and I got oh, I got a wife and kids. I got bills to pay. I've got, you know, a kid in college with tuition is expensive or whatever it is. Um, I think the effect of that has made it much more difficult for physicians to ask critical questions, mm -hmm. to um, to, to behave as physicians should behave when they are operating on the front lines of a novel phenomenon or novel illness, which is to, to make careful observations, to exercise clinical judgment, to be open to trying new things, and then to go with what works, rather than just saying, okay, we're going to follow some protocol devised by some government bureaucracy that's thousands of miles away from you know, me here on the front lines. So that that's one factor. I think in the realm of public health, we've seen shifts also towards centralization of power. So I describe in the book what I call an increasingly militarized public health apparatus, which, um, and I, tra I trace actually a significant shift back to um, the year 1989, when there was a conference in DC sponsored by Anthony Fauci on how to manage epidemics or pandemics. And something happened at that conference, which at first glance looks subtle, but if you follow it out to its logical conclusion is very consequential. What happened at that conference was a fundamental reframing of an epidemic or a pandemic from traditional public health, which saw the pathogen, the virus or the bacteria as the enemy to be fought, to one that saw the fundamental problem being the human population itself. And I'll explain what I mean by that briefly. So traditional public health says, okay, we've got a novel coronavirus and it seems to harm some subset of people, old people, frail people. So how can we protect those people? How can we strengthen their immunity so that they have better defenses against that virus? 
through healthy behaviors, through vitamin D, through diet, exercise, maybe through vaccines, maybe through medications where those are indicated as prophylaxis. Um, and then how do we treat sick people, right? We, we isolate the sick people. That's traditional uh, sort of quarantine measure. Um, and then we try to do what we can to make sure that they recover and that the harm is minimized to them. So that's traditional public health. What happened at this conference in 1989 was rather than seeing the pathogen as the enemy, the real problem to be solved was the human population as a vector for that pathogen. The, the real problem was how do we control an entire population that is capable of spreading this virus? And that's where you get this totally untested, totally novel concept of let's lock everyone down, right? And this was falsely uh, claimed to be analogous to the quarantines practiced in the past. Well, you know, ancient and medieval societies would have quarantines just like we had lockdowns when they had an outbreak of the plague or something like that. No, ancient and medieval societies would isolate symptomatically sick people from everyone else. They never attempted to isolate or lock down healthy people in their homes. They never told people that they couldn't apply their trades. Sometimes they would lock the, 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 the gates of a walled city, right? But they never pre prevented economic and civic and social activity from occurring within that city. So lockdowns were a wholly novel, untested method of trying to control an entire population, making no distinction between the healthy and the sick, making no distinction between the high risk groups and low risk groups based on age or health status or other relevant factors. And if you follow this out to its logical conclusion, basically that model of public health, controlling entire human populations as a vector of disease requires technologies and levels of surveillance that prior to COVID were really not possible, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a the theoretical model back in 1989, but after you know, the first iPhone came out in 2007 with the advent of novel digital technologies that, that actually permitted the government to track your every movement, uh, which they did during COVID. The CDC tracked cell phone data without notifying or getting consent from the public. Um, Canada did the same, even though Justin Trudeau promised that they wouldn't. Uh, the Canadian Health Agency, National Health Agency tracked mobile phone data uh, to monitor how many people were gathering at schools and how many people were gathering mm -hmm. at churches and so forth. So uh, with these novel technologies of surveillance and control, people came to believe that we could control the spread of a highly contagious respiratory virus by doing things that we had never done before, by lockdowns, by society-wide mask mandates, by society-wide vaccine mandates, by vaccine passports, having to show a QR code just to engage in normal activity or travel or what have you. Um, all of this proved not to stop the spread of COVID, but it did prove to be a very, very effective leverage for people who wanted to gain powers of surveillance and control over entire populations. Hmm. And, and that's part of the reason why they continue to be embraced enthusiastically, even if it, even after it became very clear that these things were not working to stop the spread of the virus. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make a couple of comments here and it may lead you to some other things you want to say. But the first thing is, I, when you're talking 
I think back to uh, the idea of nudging when it came into public health. Yeah. I was very disturbed by it at the time. I remember some of my colleagues thinking it was a great idea, but, and just for the people who may not be familiar with it, nudging was the concept. Public health, let's say if you wanted people not to smoke, previously public health would say, how do we educate people? How do we provide maybe uh, nicotine patches, things like that, educate people on the dangers of smoking. And then if they agree and want to stop smoking, then they can. But the idea with nudging was it would kind of be done behind the person's back. So you, basically exactly. by nudging, it would you would do all these things to make smoking a little more difficult. We'll, we'll crank up the price a little bit. We'll uh, make more places where you can't smoke. We'll, we'll have maybe some extra taxes or higher insurance rates for people who smoke, whatever, these, these various things just to make it less comfortable to smoke rather than just looking at the person in the face as a physician or as a public health officer and saying, hey, I don't think you should smoke and I'd love to help you stop. Are you interested? So it was this idea that it's part of the managerial state, as I see it, where the average Joe isn't smart enough to really figure things out himself. We just have to control him properly. And then he'll, he'll make the right decisions that we all, you know, uh, we experts know are good for him. Am I wrong about nudging? No, no, you're, you're, uh, you're a hundred percent right. Probably the worst examples of this that, that have been made public. I think all the Western governments were doing this, but this behavioral nudge unit in the UK, in the UK, Several of the psychologists that were involved in it came out afterwards and, and publicly reputed, repudiated their own work, saying, you know, this was this was crossing the line into totalitarian levels of of control. You know, at the lowest level of nudging, you have things like, okay, maybe in a grocery store we'll put healthier foods at eye level and less healthy foods at lower level. You know, maybe some of that kind of behavioral psychology, um, tinkering with something like the shelves at a grocery store, you might be able to justify that. But the the problem is whenever you start using these sort of let's bypass conscious rationality to try to change people's behaviors, once you cross that Rubicon and that line, um, it becomes easy just to continue taking the next step down that path, doing things like what the behavioral nudge unit in the UK was doing, which was much more authoritarian levels of uh, control and and propaganda. So one of the things that we saw during COVID was um, number one, censorship often at the behest of the government of any critics of the government's preferred pandemic policies and censorship of credible scientific information that may have swayed people to have a different view of how we should have responded to COVID. So you had the censorship of science, you had the censorship of very credible voices arguing that some of these policies are harmful and, you know, another set of policies would have been, you know, much more sensible. Um, You also had propaganda. So that's the flip side of the information control ecosystem. On the one side is you suppress information that you don't like. and that can be done in very sophisticated ways now by controlling the flow of information online and by, by controlling mm-hmm. especially social media companies where most people today get their news or get their links to read things that are uh, newsworthy. But the second aspect is, is the 
sort of the positive pushing out of content that is deliberately or willfully designed to um, not even I won't even use the word persuade, but to but to force you into thinking and behaving in a particular way. And I think this is a fatal mistake that our public health authorities did. They they began with a behavioral outcome that was predetermined and predecided. Um, everyone has to wear masks, you know, without a careful examination of the evidence in favor of a policy like that, or the, the downstream harms of masking, especially young children, or a needle in every arm. It was just a foregone conclusion. We're not going to discuss that goal. There's not going to be any debate about that goal. What we're the only thing we're going to do is is maybe you know maybe discuss the the best means to that particular end. So the the managerial class just became about how do we get as many people as possible to that preferred outcome. And you know we'll start with nudges. We'll start with you know um, we'll enter you into a lottery ticket, or you can get a free this or a free that if you get the jab when it comes to vaccines, for example. And when that didn't work, or when that capped out in terms of the number of people that were persuaded by those kinds of means, uh, then they were just, it was, a, it was a ready step to employ outright force. Okay, the threat of losing your job, we're gonna make you get this mm -hmm. um, in order to get that behavioral outcome. So you, you saw this sort of continuum from um, these so-called behavioral nudges, which were subtle and, and and some of them don't look, you know, sort of terribly authoritarian. They could look even benign mm -hmm. to the next step in, in nudging, which is a little more heavy handed to suppression and censorship to outright propaganda to kind of total informational control and severe punishments for those mm -hmm. who would dissent. And all of this starts with a contempt for the average citizen, the average Canadian, the average American, to you know process the information that we know, and to make an informed decision for themselves or their families. Uh, it, it's a kind of elite disdain for ordinary people's common sense judgments, and uh, it's a kind of technocratic contempt for you know, the democratic process and for the uh, for the shared rationality that all of us participate in. And look, as soon as you stop bypass, as soon as you start bypassing people's rationality and their free will, in other words, as soon as you abandon the principle of informed consent, um, you're headed down a very dark path. Mm. Um, and I, I wanted to link back to something you said uh, a while ago. And as well as a contempt for the autonomy of the individual, there's this contempt built into the public health approach for the autonomy of the physician as well. Yes. And you had, you had touched yeah. on that already. And it was interesting, like there's many people try to draw significant distinctions between the American system and the Canadian system. And Canadians, one of our base traits that's instilled in us from when we're young is that we're morally superior because we have this great public health system that works so well to care for everyone. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that I, I see this real parallel in that in Canada, physicians are, have really become since, since the around, you know, 1970, when universal medical care and the government takeover of the provision of medical care was finalized, physicians have basically become cogs in a big socialist yes. machine rather than yeah. 
autonomous agents who who make autonomous decisions with autonomous individuals. And in in the states, you know, I, I think you had mentioned already about how there's this shift from from uh, physicians being in private practice to working for HMOs. But I think HMOs essentially serve that same purpose or same. Yeah. I mean, not purpose, but same function as our government here does in turning patients into numbers and physicians yeah. to a cog in the machine of care that's determined by the higher ups. I think that's exactly right, Chris. Um, and even though we have more payers and more entities here, sort of corporate uh, or government entities running the business of healthcare, they also seem to coordinate. Uh, among one another, and and one of the re one of the areas where that coordination is just very easy, is even though we don't have a government run or a single payer healthcare system, we do have Medicare here in the United States, which there's no uh, private hospital in the United States that could survive without Medicare dollars. So the the government is heavily invested in how every single private hospital in the United States runs. Basically, every ho private hospital sets their clinical documentation rules and, and many other regulatory and compliance issues using Medicare as a benchmark because they're sort of the most onerous. And so even if you have private insurance that may have less onerous documentation requirements, you just you always do it the Medicare way, right? So that homogenizes most of our healthcare system, particularly when it comes to inpatient care, but also out outpatient care for the elderly. And we know that in the United States, Medicare dollars were very much tied to things like uh, vaccination rates for hospital staff, right? So that was a big stick that basically forced hospitals into, you know, instituting these vaccine mandates. Reimbursement rates for the care provided we're all incentivized to overdiagnose COVID, to make no distinction between uh, being hospitalized or dying with COVID, with a positive test versus from COVID, COVID as the cause of the illness for which you were hospitalized or the reason that you ended up dying. Um, and so that inflated COVID numbers and, and caused all kinds of other mischief in our hospital systems. So even though our system in many respects looks quite different from Canada, I think, again, in the last 30, 40 years, we've moved very far in the direction of a more homogenized, centralized uh, healthcare system in the United States. Medicare is only one of the reasons for that. I mean, there's other reasons that could, that could be cited in terms of medical societies and, and the influence of big pharma on healthcare systems, on the government, on the healthcare agencies in the United States, like the FDA, which is supposed to be regulating the pharmaceutical uh, companies. So, uh, you know, the full the full description of how all that came about is a complicated story. I've, I've mentioned only a few elements of it, but I think you're exactly right that, that what, what you've seen in Canada is not very dissimilar to what you've seen in the United States. Um, there are still probably more pockets of resistance in the United States, or it's easier to to kind of set up a private practice and do an end run around some of that system. But um, but it's 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 hard to survive doing that. And in certain specialties, particularly my own specialty of psychiatry, much easier to sort of set up a solo practice and um, you know just set up a sliding scale where you you people reimburse 
uh, you take payments out of pocket and so forth. Uh, but in most specialties, that's very difficult to do, and you're still going to be relying on uh, Medicare dollars. You're still going to be sort of very much tied into a, a small number of health insurers that are exercising, you know, enormous control over how you practice medicine. Mm, yeah, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a myth in Canada that all kinds of you Americans die bleeding on the street because nobody cares for them, and uh, yeah. you know it's not at all true. And uh, people have no idea how much the government spends on healthcare in uh, in the U.S. and how uh, what would you say? Uh, yeah, how, how much the government spends on on healthcare and how much the government regulates healthcare. So Canadians see yeah. the failure of the American failures of the American system as failures of free market, and we say, "Oh, thank God the government controls our system." Whereas I see it like having somewhat studied the history of the healthcare in the U.S., I see it as as too much government control, intervention, regulation, which has just created this messy, horrible system. Yeah. And again, that's just my my mental construct. I, I don't know if it's correct yeah. or not. But well, look, I, I'm I'm not I'm not going to defend the U.S. healthcare system. We have many many problems, um, and I think there's pros and cons to to both systems. There's no perfect healthcare system. But I will say that the, the, the slur or the slander that people are dying in the streets here is not true. You are required under federal law, if anyone shows up in the ER, to treat them and to stabilize them. And, you know, when I was at UC Irvine uh, Hospital, we, we treated many, many um, undocumented individuals, many, many underfunded or unfunded and individuals uh, that came to us for care and they got excellent care. So, um, so it's not true that people are dying in the streets here. And I, I will say there were plenty of cases too um, when I was at the hospital of Canadians who could afford to do so, not wanting to wait so long to get their procedure or to get the necessary test in a system that seemed clogged um, or slow. And they would come down here to get certain things and pay for it out of pocket. So the system, um, the system is not perfect. Uh, and it, in some ways, the Canadian system may be better. I'm not even going to argue that it's it doesn't have its own merits. But I will say, um, certain aspects of our system are good enough that um, you know the Canadians that that can afford this, which is obviously a very small sliver of of the population, will come down here to get medical care that they feel that they can't get in Canada. Well, what I can say is. Uh... The Canada is ranking pretty much at the bottom of the G20 in terms yeah. of our healthcare system delivery. Uh, you know, just things like wait times, people dying on wait lists and whatnot. It, it, 10 years ago, nobody thought it could get any worse, and then it did, and then it got worse again and again. So we're, we're really at a, at a bottom point. For the listeners there, we, Aaron and I had a little uh, brief break as we went on to a second link. Um, Aaron, you were the, I believe, if, if I have it right, the director of medical ethics at UC Irvine Medical School. Correct. Yeah, that's and, right. Because of your uh, your stance on uh, patient autonomy and your adherence to medical ethics, ironically, you're fired from that position. But uh, anyway, we correct. Won't, we won't get too far <laughs> into that. What I would like is your opinion on something. So this is from Doctors Nova Scotia magazine from September of 2022, written by the chief, or not the chief, but the medical officer of health for the eastern part of Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote the following. So um, 
he and it's about ethics ethics and decision making in a pandemic so he says i want to focus on pandemic decision making and explore two important distinctions of public health ethics from the rest of medical ethics so he's he says that their public health ethics is different than medical ethics the rest of medical ethics so he, he goes on to say first public health relies on distinct ethical frameworks and values when shifting perspectives from individual to the population Good public health decisions are insufficiently guided by the familiar medical ethical values of autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice. Rather, we draw on different ethical values and frameworks. Exploring these values and frameworks will be the focus of next month's article, but recognizing that different guiding values such as proportionality and least restrictive means exist is an important first step. So he's basically saying when we get into public health ethics, we have to sort of throw away autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice, the principles of regular ethical decision-making and instead use ideas like proportionality and least restrictive means. And just to kind of outline my concern with this, um, first I'll say I approached the author, I communicated with him and asked him to do a podcast with me to explain this. He declined Mm -hmm. uh, saying that he doesn't know that much about medical ethics, um, which was interesting. But the other thing I, I was, I worked in prisons and the only place that I've heard proportionality and least restrictive means talked about it wasn't in public health. It was in prisons and in criminal justice. Isn't so that are, interesting? Are, are <laughs> yeah. Actually public health ethical principles. Is, there, is this something as the director of medical ethics, were you familiar yeah. with proportionality and least restrictive means as medical ethical decision-making? Yeah. So I, I don't subscribe to the claim that he seems to be making that those principles or other kind of utilitarian principles that have been proposed as a framework for public health should override medical ethics when it comes to the treatment of patients, when it comes to the administration of things like vaccines, And there's lots of reasons for that, but a simple way of putting it is that public health ethics should not absorb and take over and steamroll medical ethics. Public health doesn't really have a robust ethical framework. There's not a robust research literature or a well-developed literature on public health ethics insofar as it has been developed it seems to grasp on to these kind of grandiose claims, which basically amount to the typical rules that people are used to in a clinical setting don't apply to us. And furthermore, we're the only ones qualified to say, under what circumstances can we shift from a medical ethics to what we're calling a public health ethics? And I simply do not buy that. There's historical reasons for concerns here as well. As you dive into the history of public health in North America, it becomes clear not just that there's considerable overlap between public health in the United States and Canada and the the eugenics movement, but that in many ways, the history of public health just is the history of the eugenics movement. It's not like you have a Venn diagram with some overlap. It's like in, in, in many points, in the history of the 20th century, 
it's virtually impossible to disentangle those two things. And the eugenics movement advanced precisely by these utilitarian ends justify the means. Now it's dressed up in more subtle language like proportionality, but that basically means, you know, it's, it's, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And, you know, we try to, we try to minimize harms, but we don't guarantee that some people are not going to be harmed by our policies. You know, the, the overarching good that we're trying to achieve, or we believe we will achieve with our policies justifies us steamrolling certain people's civil rights and individual liberties. And, you know, whether it's a right of free speech or it's a right of bodily autonomy, or it's a right of, uh, you know, movement within your own country and participation in social life, uh, public health gurus who want to sort of reinvent a new public health ethics seem to think that they should be given the power and authority to decide which of those rights can be taken away from you under what circumstances. And if that's the case, then you actually don't have any civil rights. Mm-hmm. If, if an unelected public health bureaucrat can take them away because he or she judges that the situation warrants it, you don't actually have what the Declaration of Independence in the United States called inalienable rights that always need to be respected. And it's, it's precisely in wartime, it's precisely in times of crises, like a pandemic or an epidemic, that it's most important to adhere to our fundamental ethical principles, because in ordinary peacetime and ordinary sort of, uh, you know, social life, that's not the times where you're most strongly tempted to abandon those principles. Um, you know, when there's peace and comedy and everyone's getting along, not, not that hard to respect people's free speech. It's when you're in a situation in which, you know, certain people insist that they're right and other people shouldn't even have the right to ask questions or to dissent. That's precisely when you need a strong guarantee of free speech. That's precisely when you need a strong guarantee of bodily autonomy uh, and informed consent. And just historically, I mean, if you look at the worst examples of public health gone sideways, starts with the American eugenics movement in the 1920s, 1930s, gets exported to Germany in the 1930s, taken to its logical conclusion beyond just involuntary sterilization, which we had in the United States. Um, the Germans take it further into involuntary euthanasia. And, and you know, the first, the first people who died in gas chambers under the Nazis were not um, ethnic minorities like Jews dying in concentration camps. They were cognitively and physically disabled patients that were gassed in hospitals and psychiatric hospitals in Germany. That, that's, where, that's where those tools were developed and they grew directly out of the eugenics movement that Hitler embraced, looking to the United States as a model for many of the laws that they adopted in Germany in the 1930s and the 1940s. And the world responded with horror to all of that at the Nuremberg trials. And the Nuremberg Code, which was developed in the wake of the Nuremberg trials, which, which included not just Nazi war criminals, but a dozen physicians scientists were tried at Nuremberg. Um, half of those were, uh, were convicted and some of them ended up receiving the death penalty. They were, they were, they hung for crimes against humanity and the Nuremberg code, which was developed in the wake of that, which I encourage all of our listeners to read. It's not a long document. It's a, you know, it's two page document 
very easy to digest and understand, but the very first principle articulated in the Nuremberg Code to make sure that stuff like that never happened again was the principle of informed consent. And that's precisely the principle that this novel, quote unquote, public health ethics is gunning for. Mm-hmm. It's trying to, <laughs> trying to undermine the, the bulwark that the world tried to put in place against the kinds of terrible abuses that we saw with the eugenics movement culminating in the atrocities of the Nazi doctors. Mm. And I, I think we toss that principle overboard at our peril. It's extremely, extremely dangerous. Yes. Um, I, yeah, just to sort of chime in a bit there, I, I, it just feels like, you know, the, uh, that idea of proportionality can be twisted in anything. It, it may yeah. be, maybe very logical and proportionate to euthanize an elderly lady who's taking up hospital space in a crowded Canadian just hospital. So. And just so. It yeah. feels like it feels like we're moving in that direction. And it, it, it I think, you know, just to phrase things a different way, as, as soon as a physician's first responsibility goes away from the individual and to the public health at large, they can convince themselves to do pretty horrible things to that individual in front of them for the sake of the overall public health. And, and I think that's where that's we- exactly right. Just just going back to the German example, um, 45%, almost half of German physicians joined the Nazi party, even though it wasn't required for membership in the profession. It might, might help with professional exa- uh, you know, advancement, but you can contrast that with only 10% of teachers in Germany who joined the Nazi party. So why did four times as many physicians as teachers uh, embrace Nazi ideology? Well, one of the reasons is that in the 1920s and 1930s, German physicians had already adopted this novel ethic that proposed that my role as a physician is not to take all of my knowledge and skills and place them at the service of the sick individual patient in front of me. That's the traditional Hippocratic ethic of medicine minimize harms to as much good as I can for this sick person who's vulnerable because they're ill. There was a shift in Germany starting in the 1920s, a book by um, Alfred Hoke and, uh, and Bidding, the, the psychiatrist and uh, lawyer who co-authored a book called the Dest- On the Destruction of Life Unworthy of Life, Lebensunswertes Leben in the German, advocating precisely that the job of the physician is not to treat the sick individual, but to treat the, the social organism as a whole. So they utilize this metaphor of society as being healthy or sick, or the Volk, the German people as a whole, is like an organism that can be healthy and sick. And on that metaphor, you know, there are certain members of that organism, certain parts of that organism, that is to say certain German individuals who are a cancer on the body politic. And what does a physician do with a cancer? Well, he carves it out to save the life of the whole, right? And this metaphor took hold in the minds of physicians. And there was this, what can look at first glance like a subtle shift, but a very consequential shift from treating the individual sick patient. And that is my fiduciary responsibility to basically being an agent of a social program or an agent of a state program that is you know, purportedly about public health or the health of the whole. Well, um, 
clearly when when you get a political party in power that's steering that ship it's that is um you know that is disordered <laughs> you very very quickly go off a cliff right so physicians have to maintain that traditional hippocratic ethic it said no 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 my job is to is and my responsibility is to my patients as individual patients i'm not the agent of some social program i'm not the agent of some public health program however worthy it might be or however worthy it might appear you know i'm not saying there aren't sensible public health proposals but phys physicians primary responsibility is not to the state it's not to a public health agency it's not to a social program it's to sick individuals who whoever they might be right great well you know what i i could speak with you all night there's a lot more i'd love to ask you but just to respect your time i will wrap it up there unless there's anything else you think is important to leave us with before you go no i, I mean i just want to say um thank you for the work that you're doing thank you for the conference that you're hosting i'm looking forward to to being a part of it um you've got an amazing lineup of of people and i'm so edified that um you know there there are people in uh, to the north our neighbors up there in canada like you that are fighting this battle. Um, so yeah, I appreciate being on the show. I look forward to uh, speaking with the group at the conference virtually. Lovely. Well, you know, I, I just right back at you, like I, I'm, I'm just sort of a little bit player, but man, you're right in the thick of it, uh, the Missouri v. Biden and working with Brownstone and doing all these wonderful things. And uh, I know it's gotta be a real stretch to keep all those balls in the air. So we really, really appreciate what you're doing. We we're so thrilled you agreed to speak with us this year. And like I say, we, uh, we'd love to get you here in person sometime. Cape Breton is a, a beautiful place. I was just out for a, an eight kilometer kayak on a lovely evening and you, you can't beat it here. So, uh, th there's lots, lots of great reasons to come here and we hope we can convince you to come in person next Great. Week. I'll find my way to Nova Scotia, uh, in, in due time for sure. So lovely. Thanks very much, Aaron. Thanks, Chris.